Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. I'd like to thank BetterHelp for supporting Prevail. For 10% off your first month, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. We've got a great show. The author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House, Tom Lobianco is here. We talk about all things Mike Pence. Tom has been covering this guy for like a decade, so I don't know what karma he had in his past life that he has now, you know, <laughs> been doing this this whole time. I feel bad for him. I have great sympathy. Um, it was really fun to talk to him. I learned a lot about Mike Pence, and it helped me crystallize my understanding, insofar as it can be crystallized, of, of what his motivations are and what's going on in that head of his, because, my God, he's like a sphinx, right? Tom's been covering him for years. He wrote the book about him. He knows a lot of stuff, and um, this was a really interesting convo. The other thing going on this week, I just want to say it up front. There's this guy, Durham. Every time I see the word Durham trending on Twitter, my brain goes to the word that comes to mind when I see the word Durham, which is bull. So Durham is a, a special counsel that was installed by Bill Barr when he was attorney general. From what I could gather, this was just Barr either trying to appease Trump by having his own special counsel or, you know, Barr trying to like stir up trouble and, and, and throw spaghetti at the wall and, and see what sticks. But Durham is basically the bizarro Mueller. You know, he's uh, he's supposed to come out and have all this stuff that's going to happen. But whatever comes out of his report or his filing or whatever, the f I, I, I don't care what it is about Hillary and pings and this and that. Let's not forget the basic facts of the case here, which is that the Trump campaign, members of Trump's circle, people who Trump was working with, 
right? His foreign policy advisors, his son-in-law, the guy who would become his first attorney general. These people all met with Russian nationals with close ties to the Russian government, a hostile foreign power during the campaign, after the election, and even after that. So I think this is, might be a time where they're trying to like turn the tables or project or something. But I mean, come on. Jared Kushner really did go out with uh, Kissinger, who introduced him to Dimitri Symes. And that's how they had that uh, foreign policy speech at the Mayflower Hotel, where Sergei Kislyak, uh, the Russian ambassador to the United States, attended. And Trump was able to uh, meet with him. The Trump Tower meeting really did happen. Jared Kushner was there. Junior was there, of course. Paul Manafort was there. There were representatives of Putin's government. You know, Natalia Veselnitskaya is a lawyer that works for the guy. I mean, this all happened. Jeff Sessions met with some Russians. Jared Kushner met with a with a with the head of a of sanctioned Russian bank at the Carlisle Hotel. On and on. And remember, Trump met with Kislyak and that, that jackal Lavrov, the guy that's right now in the news all the time that you see on the news uh, with the Ukraine stuff, this asshole foreign minister guy in the Oval Office. He let these enemies into the Oval Office, into the inner sanctum. That's what he did. So I don't care about Hillary and pings and whatever the fuck Durham finds. You know, if it leads somewhere, then it leads somewhere. But let's not forget the fact that this guy, Trump, met with Russians all throughout the campaign. His representatives met with Russians throughout the campaign. And he basically did Putin's bidding for four years, including capitulating to him in Helsinki in the most embarrassing way possible. Just a, just a, a public humiliation. So that's the deal. So when I see Durham, I say bull. That's just me. But that's enough about that. This podcast today is not about Donald Trump. This podcast today is about Donald Trump's vice president, the one, and thankfully the only, Mike Pence. So we're going to be right back with Tom Lobianco. Could you survive on 70 grand a day? Of course not. Let's face it, in this country, 70 grand a day don't go that far. Not with the freaking inflation. And it's certainly not enough for an organized crime outfit to live on. But to a Jersey wise guy in need, 70 grand a day makes all the difference in the world. Hi, I'm Nunzio Siccarelli, and I'm asking for your help. My family used to control Essex and Union counties. Now, thanks to the fucking Russians, we can barely make ends meet. You heard that right. These foreigners come here and take in our jobs. So yeah, 70 grand a day, it ain't a lot, but we really need to scratch. So call now, 1-800-70-GUMBA, and give generously. Make the American Mob Italian again. And now, back to the show. Tom Lobianco, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Now, you worked at AP, I think, when I worked at AP, except that you're a journalist and I am not. Uh, and then you worked for the Indianapolis Star and you mm -hmm. worked for CNN and now you work at Business Insider. And you basically have been covering the Indiana State House and Mike Pence for years and years. <laughs> so what, the first thing I want to say is whatever they're paying you, it is not enough. You are oh, underpaid. 
<laughs> um, tell us a little bit about how you wound up on this particular beat. You know, what, what, what's your backstory? Yeah, totally, man. Well, dude, number one, thanks. I didn't realize you were at the AP. Where were, were you? I worked uh... in HR. I worked in HR. So no maybe, way, man. maybe it wasn't the same time. Maybe I was earlier. That's great. So yeah. I love the AP. It's, yeah, me, you know, me too. It's great. Mm-hmm. Journalism boot camp, man. It teaches us all how to do this right. And um other than their ridiculous contempt for the Oxford comma. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know, right? Exactly. And the, you know, there's always like the lag time of the style book and like the lead time of the AP style book, you know, and like, and of course, Twitter, Twitter gauges all of this for us properly. <laughs> <laughs> so now are you from Indiana originally or? I'm from, I'm actually from Maryland. I'm from uh, just north of Baltimore. I graduated, oh boy, when I graduated high school, 2000. So like I graduated Towson High, 2000 four years ahead of Michael Phelps. So that guy is forever beating me in everything and I'll never catch up. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, actually I used to do, I used to write for the school paper back then. Um, You know, I've been doing writing since, well, for forever, I guess, really, you know, high school, college, undergrad, jumped out for a hot minute to go to graduate school. I used to do uh, transportation ridership estimate research for former Governor Michael Dukakis up in Northeastern. Oh, okay. And so I could tell you all about these environmental impact statements. I can tell you how people screw around with the environmental impact statements. I can tell you to read those, read your bond rating um, uh, documents always. If you want to find out how a government's doing, read what Fitch and Moody's have to say. I'm not so sure about Standard & Poor's since they... um, you know, since they flubbed the recession and their assessments. But uh, generally speaking, the, the people that hold the bonds are the ones that will tell you, give you a pretty grim state of affairs. Uh, Fun times. Fun on. times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great if dry source. Yeah. So, yeah, man, you know, I've been reporting. I've been covering politics for a while. Um, I guess a couple, de- two decades, something like that. And um, and I was covering Maryland politics. I've covered so I was covering the Maryland State House for the AP and okay. back in 2011, and um, they had an opening out in Indiana, and they needed somebody to uh, cover the the expected presidential campaign of Mitch Daniels. So back mm. in the heady days of the 2000, early in the 2012 primary cycle, and I went out there, and I I would say within three weeks of me moving to Indianapolis, you know, Mitch was bowed out. And yeah, I remember. I remember that being kind of a little bummed because he seemed like a relatively sane, competent Republican. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm not sure. I always this is silliness, but um, I can't shake the fact that he's not a tall dude, and that's not a knock on him in any sense. He's absolutely. I think he's. I always tell people this. He is the smartest politician I've ever covered. And I think the other, the flip side of that too, is to recognize that his political acumen is has always long been better than his policy acumen. Mm, yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, you know, with regards to that, I just, I mean, I don't know. The first time I saw him, I was like, well, you, if you can't compete on a debate stage, I mean, it's you know, height is one of the drivers of what people look for in in presidential, you know, presidential figures. It's, I mean. You know, that and an aquiline nose. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> it's silly, but you know what? 
I mean, look where we are right now. Okay. I mean, if you're trying to apply, we, I feel like we in the industry always try to apply ration and like, you know, reason. And, you know, we talk things through and it's like, guys, they're, you know, people really aren't making decisions based on that, um, you know, for, for good, bad, or otherwise. Well, it's like, the, it's like the Warren Harding thing. Like they, they picked Warren Harding and made him president because he looked so much like somebody who should be the president, even though he was a, one of the worst presidents we've ever had. God damn, he looked good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll tell you, man, Mitch Daniels is a great, he's a great politician to cover. He gives great quotes, super thoughtful in his answers. You know, I'm not speaking to, you know, whether you agree with his policies or not, or his politics or not, but just really fascinating. I remember at the end of 2012, so, you know, Pence won a squeaker in that election. He, he beat out John Gregg in that two- 2012 governor's race by like you it was like 2.9 points percentage points or like 2.6 percentage points it was less than three percentage points okay i mean it was a let's just put it this way he only he he only barely beat out youngkin glenn youngkin's margin of victory okay, okay. yeah there was a margin <laughs> of error of victory is basically exactly and I just remember sitting, you know, this is back in December of 2012, and I'm at this uh, this conference, the the local chamber of commerce is putting on, and it's a uh, you know look forward down the road, uh, you know what's coming for Indiana, and Mitch Daniels is up there giving this incredible talk about uh, water tables in southern Indiana and the coming water use fights that we'll be seeing in the next three to four decades. And I'm just like wrapped with attention. I was like, holy <laughs> crap, man, this is brilliant. I'm just like, this is fascinating. You know, I feel like I'm like listening to like, uh, you know, Jeff Bingaman or somebody, you know, go on about, you know, uh, you know, energy debates in the Southwest and it's the governor of Indiana doing it. Yeah. And, you know, we had a little gaggle with him afterwards and we're asking him some questions. And it just hit me in that moment that I was trading Mitch Daniels to cover Mike Pence, the world's <laughs> most boring politician. And I was just like ready to gouge my eardrums out. I was just like- Already, that, that yeah, was a lot. Already, <laughs> already, already, definitely. In 2012, okay. Oh my God, you must, yeah. And here you are, you're still doing this, my goodness. Okay, you I, Right, exactly. The, the cosmos has quite the sense of humor, my man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but this is really important. And this is actually, this gets to, I think, you know, our central question, you know, why we're talking right now, right? Which is that Pence does a great job of flying under the radar. He does. Right? Like he's really good at it and he's tested at it. He's studied at this. He's very good at it. You know, one one of my longtime sources from Indiana, um, when I was writing the book, he made this incredible point. He said, for Mike Pence, boring is his camouflage. Yeah. Yeah. I agree and with it, that. It's, it's clear. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's why he, it works, man. You know, look at us, you know, we're laughing at how fucking boring this guy is. I'm sorry. I shouldn't, I shouldn't curse. It's fine. No, you should absolutely. The only p- people who will be offended by you cursing are members of Mike Pence's family. Okay. Um, right. you, you mentioned okay. your book. So I want to, I want to tell everybody what the book is. It's called piety and power, Mike Pence and the taking of the white house. And uh, I read it when it came out. It's very good. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. I read it a while ago. So I want to go back. I want to talk about how the book Thanks, came about man. and all this kind of stuff. So, but you're right. I mean, he is, he's, he's a fascinating figure to me because he's somebody that kind of, you know, what does he want? What is his deal? What does he really hope is going to happen? What yeah. drives him? 
um, to, to, to attach his star to this obvious criminal who he must have known was a criminal really early on and, and to survive for as long as he did. There's a lot of questions that I have that I'm going to ask, but let, I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. Let's, let's go back, but talk a little bit about the early years of Mike Pence. Cause I think, I think this Ooh. is pretty important too. Like one of the yes. things from the book that I remember is he's now he, he, we, we think of him as like evangelical or I do, um, yeah. but he, he was not raised that way. He's raised Catholic and he mm -hmm. converted later. Is it, do I have, remember that right? Or yeah, I, totally. Yeah. 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 And it was Karen that, that, that got him in, into it. Right. Or was it somebody else? Yeah. You yeah. know, what's fascinating about that. I always, I've, I've always found these themes in the, in, in, in Pence's career. And I guess this is, um, <laughs> I should probably apologize for this because I haven't written these into really, you know, decent columns or, or essays or Twitter threads. I probably should now that I think about it. Because they're just not compelling, you know, when like, you know, the, the the government's, you know, about to be overthrown and people are trying to hang the vice president. These are the kind of things that are just like, you know, two or three steps below that in mm -hmm. terms of excitement and whatnot. Um, you know, I always found this thread in his life when I was doing, no, I was doing the book, and I still see it a little bit now too, um, of people pushing him to do things. Really, he's a yeah. guy who gets pushed to do things. It's really fascinating, actually. So 1978, so, okay, so here, very brief history of Mike Pence. He's born June 1959. Um, his family had relocated from Chicago to Columbus, Indiana, just a couple years earlier. And this is in the 50s, and there's a, um, there's a big push of, um, of engineers coming in from all over the country to go take jobs at Cummins Engines manufa Engine Manufacturing down Columbus and uh, Arvin, uh, they're doing radios and I think they did car heaters too. And, um, and you know, there's a big manufacturing boom there in Columbus, Indiana. And Columbus, Indiana too is a, is a fascinating city. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, this world-class architecture there that was put in by the old town father, uh, the guy who was the chairman of the Cummins, name is uh, J. Irwin Miller. And, you know, the Pences move into this. And their fa the father, Ed Pence, is a, um, he's working for this oil company um, called Keel Brothers Oil Company. He owns a couple of gas stations down there, too. He has a couple of marathon gas stations down there. And they do great, you know, they're like, mm -hmm. they do really well, you know, they move up, they start in like these, basically these really tiny, like, you know, cinder box, almost condominiums that were there for like the young, young families when they're moving into Columbus, Indiana, they move up from that to a Rambler, they move from that to like a, I can't remember what the third house was, or like a split level. And by the time they're, the father's moving up in this company, they move into a real nice house in Columbus, Indiana. So it's like, it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a classic middle-class success up, story. story. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is what, this is the world that Pence grows up in. He's really got like two pair, two groups of siblings, right? It's him and his, him and his three brothers are born, you know, kind of back to back from like 1956 to 1960, right? It goes Greg, who's in Congress right now is the mm -hmm. oldest. And then Ed Jr. And then Mike Pence and then Tom Pence. And then about like a dozen years later, they have two more children, uh, Mary Teresa and, um, and Annie Pence. And it's kind of like two separate families. So Pence is really the middle child, the way, he's grow the way he grows up. And he actually talks about this a little bit in the 1988 campaign. It's pretty fascinating. For anybody else who is a, a Pence historian or whatever, if you're looking to go real deep on Pence, 
I would say always re look into his 1988 campaign and his 1990 campaign because he used to get great interviews back then. It was back before he started hiding himself. So, you know, he grows up as like a basically like a like a like kind of a misfit almost. He's the middle child. He's the fat kid, as he says. He's the he calls himself a real pumpkin in a pickle patch. You know, so his three <laughs> brothers are super athletic. Pencil always go through. He periodically goes through these conversions in his in his life, these big changes in his life. Oh man, where was he? It was St. Columbus, and then he goes to Columbus North High School after that. Um, and he's at Columbus North High School, and he leaves the sophomore year, and he comes back his junior year of high school having lost, I think it was like 55 pounds. Oh, wow. And okay. Yeah. And he said that when he came back to school, people didn't know who the new kid was. He had the, the, what the kids call this now. That's called a glow up. That's what the really? kids Yeah. No way. Mike Pence had a glow up. He did. Yeah. Really? That's what it's called. Yeah. You wow, can use man. that. You can use that term. It's a term. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, there's all these like moments of him. And actually, let me, I'll, I'll just, you know, bring us forward in time here a minute here. I keep on wondering now when he's going to be himself. Mm. I keep on wondering when Mike Pence is going to show up. I do think you saw some of that in the January 6th letter that he wrote. I mean, to that, to me, that felt very, um, it, it was very clear and, and thought out. I, I don't, I do believe the Dan Quayle anecdote. I just don't think it's as powerful as people says it is because it's, well, number one, it's Dan Quayle. And, you know, he's awesome. I mean, he's great, right? I mean, he's former vice president, you know, uh, huge in the conservative movement, you know, decades ago. Um, but great also, golfer. Yeah, 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 you know, um, I mean, hugely influential. He's not, him and his world, he is not close with Mike Pence, Pence has his own political world. I mean, remember, you know, like every every state politics world, the different power centers all have their own orbits and Quayle is his own orbit, it's its own thing, separate and distinct from Luger, um, you know, when he was around, of course, and, you know, separate and distinct from Mitch Daniels and very separate and distinct from Mike Pence. So I think people read a little bit too much into that. And I think also too, it's, it's kind of needless, need, needlessly dismissive of Pence himself, you know? You mean that he would need help from Dan Quayle to do the right thing? Like, is that what, you're, is that what you mean? Yeah, or? I think so. Yeah. yeah. At the yeah. end of the day. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. I feel, I feel this question on the playground with the parents. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, DC, suburban DC playgrounds. Here we go. This is like, it's like one step. It's this is only one step above. Like you know, I was riding in this cab in Manhattan. Okay, and this is what the cabbie told me. All right, and we were like, you know, we're just slightly elevated from that. <laughs> it's a hipster coffee shop in L.A. And you know, yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was French that's, pressing my brew this morning. <laughs> that's where all the good stories are. Ah, oh, Jacob. Well, we haven't heard from Jacob Wall in a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> Didn't he so try sad. to kill himself? I, or was I, that stage two? I can't remember. I, don't know. I think he's he's in trouble. Um. So, okay, but you were saying about, about his conversions, about his many conversions. Yes. Go, go, stay with that for a second. I want, I'm, I'm curious about, about that because I, I, I want to understand more his character and what he is. You know, like you said, yes. he's very, he's impenetrable and he's created this, he's almost mummified himself in this, um, you know, tall, attractive, you know, good looking statue yep. that's just there to make that pursed face that he makes and to nod beatifically. <laughs> 
<laughs> and not to stand for a goddamn thing unless it's to stand up at a football game and leave because people are kneeling during the national anthem or something or, <laughs> or to leave Hamilton, you know? Um, so when you say conversions, what, what the first conversion is him having his glow up, right? Where he, he's, a, he's the, yeah. you know, kind of big guy. And then he comes back and everyone's like, wow, who's this dude? Cause yes. he's suddenly tall and good looking and, and all this stuff. Right. And so, he becomes, yeah, man, yeah, so you only carry that forward. And thanks for bringing me back on track. Um, I tend to fly off into that's space. That's fine. But... <laughs> we're going to cover all that. I want to cover it. I want to cover it later when we when we have the full picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, he comes back and he's popular and he loves it and he relishes it and he's always been a rule follower, you know, in his career, in his in his in his family, um, in his schooling. Yeah. Oh, the well. irony. Oh, the irony. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> You know what? This is actually what my what, what what my book agent and I would talked about when we were putting this thing together. The the pitch, you know, years ago was uh, was that like here's a guy who's dry as can be and just boring AF, and like, but the circumstances make the story with this guy. You know, it's just yeah. like, you know, every time. And and this is long before hell. This is long before we even knew there would be an impeachment, let alone two. Um, and yeah. uh, so. Um, he gets so he does that and he gets starts to get a little popular in high school and you know he goes off to a small small college in southern indiana down in madison indiana kind of, it's kind of close to it's on the ohio river um kind of in between like um, louisville and uh, cincinnati down there and um he falls in with like the um it's the vespers group and um he finds it's uh, one of his frat brothers down there is leading the the, the christian vespers group and he, He's kind of like pulled in by his this older frat brother that um, down there, and um, they go and he says, you know, he sees him wearing a cross one day, and this is the story that he tells that Pence told this a couple times that he sees him wearing a cross one day, and he says, well, you know, how do I get to wear that cross? And the brother, in a very like in a very a very Pence uh, Pence syntax, uh, so he says, well, you're gonna have to wear it in your heart before you can wear it in your neck, around yeah. around your neck. <laughs> That was a good pence. That was good. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he so he goes to the Ichthys Music Festival in Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky. So I guess this would have been about 1978. I think yeah, 78. He graduated 75 and 79, if that's correct. It's late 70s, and um, he goes and he has his salvation experience. He's there's an altar call. Um, it's kind of like. Um, the way it was described to me is like hippie Jesus, you know, like tent revival, like, you know, Jesus, it's, it's Woodstock Jesus. Okay. Um, yeah. And they've got, you know, lots of folk bands playing Christian, you know, Christian rock bands playing and he feels this moment. Now, what's fascinating about that. And I think this goes to the reticence of Mike Pence. And I think this goes to, you know, where to me, really, where I see a lot of the humanity of this guy is he doesn't really leave the Catholic Church until 1994. Okay. So from 1978 to 1994. And what happens in between? What happens in between is all the equivocation and the ambivalence that you come to apply to Mike Pence. You know, like this is like we see like we see this reflected constantly. He meets he meets his wife, Karen, uh, in 1983 at St. Thomas Aquinas Church in Indianapolis, which is right across the street from the governor's mansion, which is a Catholic church. So mm -hmm. they attend Catholic church together. They get married at the church over in Speedway near the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The town's called Speedway. 
it's in the speed it's next the speedway is the center of town okay um <laughs> uh, and there's speedway gas stations over there too that's that was okay. always fun trying to figure out which of the three you're talking about you know we, we have speedway gas stations in new york too yeah do you really we do i went to oh, one right, two days ago yeah yeah. Oh, right on. Mm-hmm. Do they do do they advertise the like the sixty four uh, gallon uh, sixty four ounce uh, soda? They on do. The, on... It's oh. great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Why why pay more for a soda? It's just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Speedway, if you'd like to be a sponsor, you know, hit me up. Um... <laughs> okay, so they're married in Speedway, Indiana, at mm-hmm. the church, at a Catholic church in Speedway, Indiana. Yeah, and they get married in there, you know. Um, they go through these two runs for Congress, and you know we should probably circle back on that. But those, I, you know, those two runs in, for Congress, 1988 and 1990, are really huge, hugely influential in terms of him, um, his development as a politician, as a human. And then it does. He doesn't really actually start going to an evangelical church, as could the Greenwood Community Church, and just south of Indianapolis until 1994. And the way it happens is really fascinating. The the pastor down there, so Karen and their children, the young children, they um, think by this point they would have had two children, I think, or maybe the third one, Audrey, I think, might have been born by then too. I forget when exactly when Audrey was born, but is Michael uh, uh, Jr. and then uh, Charlotte's middle child, um, 91, 94, I believe. I, it's, I'm a little rusty on those dates. And uh, Karen has been going to the uh, the evangelical community church since just south of Indianapolis with them. Um, for a while. And the pastor is always calling on Mike Pence. And Pence, at this point, is kind of developing actually into a radio celebrity. So right. he does not start out that way, but he he kind of builds his following from like 1989 to 1994. And then he gets picked up on a you know statewide syndication service. Rush Limbaugh uh, on decaf is how the show is pitched. Yeah. I well, think those are his and, words. I think that was the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, but here's the thing with him, right? I mean, he's very good at like intentional deflection. Again, to the boring his his camouflage. Rush Limbaugh on decaf, I don't think grabs it with this guy. I don't actually, let me, let me say this. There is There are a couple big gaps of um, information I have around him. I mean, stuff that I'm just like dying to find out, find out about. And, you know, I am absolutely certain he will not write about in this book, unfortunately, although he should. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to find his radio tapes. We need to find out what that guy was like on the radio in the 90s. I've listened to maybe three of his radio shows. Maybe. I, and People don't have recordings of these? No. Nope. I'm, like, I'm surprised. That's, that's weird. I wonder if it, is it because he's more rational or? Uh, well, I have a that's... lead on where I, I just, I'll just say this. I, I have a lead on where they are and I've been tapping at that for oh, many years now. Um, okay. Anyway, I have, and I don't want to like blow myself up. It exists, I, I believe. Who knows? Right. I mean, this this could be like my own white whale. Right. You know, I'm like <laughs> smashing my head against the keyboard, trying to find some you know, terrible radio content from 1995. Um, but I think what you would find if we if we did see that, I think you would find that he's just always been uh, following where the where the right is, where the the hard right is at any given moment, and emulating what he thinks works. And um, you know, it, with the conversion, he gets pulled into the community church by the um, by the pastor 
calls him six times to get coffee with him. And he keeps on batting him away. He says, no, you know, I'm not, I don't really want to. The pastor recruits him to run like a Friday uh, men's group, uh, like a prayer group for the church. And that's, it's pretty much it from there for that. But, you know, Pence is very like, you see a lot of resistance around this side, this guy, you see a lot of ambivalence. You see that in his decision-making. It takes him forever to make decisions. And I think, you know, maybe that's part of, <laughs> you know, I get that. Sometimes we, we, I need deadlines in order to perform. Okay. Cause otherwise I would just procrastinate until I died. All right. Yeah, like, I think most people are like that to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know, January 6th turned out to be arguably the most historically significant deadline in Mike Pence's entire life. <laughs> That's a great way of framing it, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and thank yeah. God he did the right thing because I know. Right. Like, I mean, dear God, I was reading that Michael Flynn, uh, the Robert Draper uh, piece on Michael Flynn. They were they had multiple ex EOs, executive orders written up on martial law, how to seize the voting machines. Like, I think a lot of us don't get um, and I certainly used to not really get this myself. Sorry for the detour, but um, we're, we're we're perpetually in a fragile place. You know, yeah. we're not walled off from the rest of the world and the, the way that coups and, you know, autocratic governments and, you know, things that would likely take, take, stop us from doing this unless we were in prison. I guess if we were in prison together, then we could probably, you know, still do this and just do it through the bars. Nobody would have the tape though. We'd have to, it would be like exactly. Mike Pence's radio show. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that stuff, that stuff happens. Like it's not always dramatic, you know, it's not, you know, whatever, Fidel Castro and the, you know, troops, you know, coming out, coming down from the hills of Cuba, you know, to storm mm -hmm. the city. Like it's sometimes it's like, it's like, uh, uh, I can't remember her name, but the sociologist who's been real big recently, who she calls it a status coup. And I'm totally blank on her name. But I, I do think that like, you know, we need to watch for that. And we still need to watch for that. Um, we need to be vigilant right now because uh, um, yeah, bad things happen in autocracies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the yeah. takeaway we're done no i i've been i've been talking about this in my column and on this show since you know since january 6th happened like the whole history of this i mean that people don't realize how close we came that day to losing everything and and what a what an attack on our democracy it was i i've been calling it the worst attack on our democracy since booth shot lincoln and i'm not i don't think it's yes. an exaggeration i think you know, you have to go back that far. It's, we've had horrible things happen in the country. Obviously, 9-11 is horrible. Pearl Harbor was horrible. But those were foreign forces attacking us. This was an internal thing. This was a coup attempt or, uh, you know, an attempt by somebody who had been roundly, soundly defeated in the popular vote by 7 million votes attempting to stay in power, mostly, I think, to keep getting money and avoid prison. So, um, you know, not for not because he was like doing a good job or anything. It was just like, shit, if I'm done, what? how am I going to not get arrested? Um, we got to keep this going, Mike Pence. Um, so, yeah, I, so I and that's what that's the that's the thing. I That's the thing that's so fascinating about Pence. Now, I I, I want to get into like, all of this stuff. We have to take a quick break. So we're going to okay. be right back with Tom LoBianco. You know, we had a lot of snow this week here in upstate New York and I did not shovel the driveway properly this time. I thought my son was going to do it. He didn't do it. And what happened was uh, it froze a lot. And now I cannot get a foot of snow out of the middle of my driveway. So 
This is the sort of thing you have to avoid, right? You get, you get your car tuned up because you don't want to have big issues down the road. You get annual checkups, so they nip things in the bud. And it's like that with mental health, too. Going to therapy is like that. It's, it's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road, to prevent the mental health equivalent of frozen ice in the driveway of your mind. You know, these are trying times right now, guys. This is, you know, we've been traumatized for the last five years and mental health is really, really, really important. So it's, it's, it's just essential, I think, for everybody to spend a little bit of time and a little bit of money to focus on their mental health. Going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. Better help is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not in your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Prevail listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash greg. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash G-R-E-G. BetterHelp. Okay, we're back with Tom LoBianco. Okay, before the break, <laughs> we were talking about Pence and his conversion and 9-11 and all this stuff. And uh, I have a lot of questions. I, I, I want to get, you know, the, the way that I, I want to talk about the insurrection and what he did on, on mm-hmm. January 6th. And I want to talk about the impeachment thing because mm-hmm. I have a, to me, the, that's a big question. But before we get to that, yeah. um, quickly, you explain really nicely in your book, again, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. You explain very nicely how exactly he came to be vice president instead of Gingrich or Chris mm. Christie. And Paul Manafort was involved and there was yep. su- there was subterfuge involved. There was trickery. <laughs> so uh, for anyone not familiar, why don't you just tell everybody the story? Because it's good. Totally. It's important, totally. It's so funny. You know, when I used to when we, when we published the book a couple of years ago and I used to, you know, I was doing interviews, I used to forget that like not everybody like lived in the weeds like, you know, like this. Um, and I, I would start telling the story by saying, well, it was Tuesday. Oh, and then it was Wednesday. And next on Thursday, and so gently someone in the audience would like remind me like, hey, man, like uh, when? Tuesday when? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. I'm sorry. Tuesday, July 12th, 2016. <laughs> so this was two weeks. So let's, I'll try to frame it better here. Here we go. Two weeks in the middle of July that I, you know, really ultimately decided the fate of the country, right? I mean, it yeah. said, you know, this is what put, this is, you, you can't, you don't, there are a number of things which could have gone one way or another, um, which would have either, you know, guaranteed Trump the White House or kept him out of the White House. You take your pick, right? Comey in October, um, you know, Hillary Clinton with the, you know, the, with the email server, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The, the WikiLeaks hack. Um, but one of them, which often gets overlooked, is Mike Pence getting pulled on the ticket. And yeah. um, this is that, I mean, this is that two-week period um, from July it's the middle of July, 2016. And, you know, for a little context here, right, you know, remember what's going on in this moment. Trump is more or less the nominee. There's still a, kind of like a last ditch effort underway by this mixture of like the never Trump Republicans and kind of the Kasich never Trump Republicans um, and the Ted Cruz 
what I would call Tea Party movement conservatives. And remember, these are separate and you know and distinct from the MAGA, right? Yeah. This, this you know hypernational pop nationalist populism that he's saying. And it looks like you know they have a pretty good shot. The, the the opposing forces have a pretty good shot of denying Trump the nomination at the the, the Republican convention in Cleveland, and and that the convention is slated to happen July nineteenth through like the twenty third, two thousand sixteen. So Mike Pence has been in consideration for a little bit now, and behind the scenes for for VP Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich are the other top contenders in this moment. And Javanka have kind of, you know, they were not there early in the earlier in the 2016 campaign, but they kind of inserted themselves once it became clear that uh, Trump was going to be the nominee or more than likely to be the nominee. And one of the things they were doing was they were helping to drive the VP process. I mean, they, you know, it's like, it's it's Jared Kushner, right? You mean, it's like he inserts himself into everything. Mm. Um, so he was very... Um, he was very big on uh, Gingrich. They all thought that Gingrich would mesh very well with Trump. Christie had his own relationship with Trump from over the years. But of course, you know, Kushner didn't like him because he helped put his father away um, when he was a federal prosecutor. I know, right? Isn't it amazing? Yeah, like, really you know, amazing. it used to, right? Like, you know, it used to be that, like, if you got like one criminal story out of your politics beat, like that was astounding. And then you would talk about that for the rest of your life. I'm like, I can't mm -hmm. keep up with the criminal stories it's, of this one. It's really insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is, oh, man. So, and, but behind the scenes, Reince Priebus and Paul Manafort have been really pushing Trump on taking Mike Pence. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And they all make sense. I mean, it's, number one is Pence brings back those Ted Cruz conservatives. He pulls them back into the fold. So the, the first thing you're doing is you're functionally putting out the, the you're putting out the immediate crisis in front of you. You're, you're dealing with that, which is actually securing the nomination. So that's number one. And Manafort himself is very big on this because he's done delegate battles before. He knows right. how these things work. Priebus in him, now Priebus more so because he's the chairman of the, the Republican Party, he has a different concern. And they're, they're shared concerns, but you know, Priebus's more driving concern in this moment is that the people that are turned off by Trump not that they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I think this is something that, you know, we, we miss a lot. And a lot of people kind of miss, you know, they think just because somebody's anti-Trump Republican, that they're automatically a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden supporter. Right. And, and previous knew, and, you know, you know, I guess, I guess this is, you know, you could argue how much this is actually panned out based on turnout numbers, but like previous knew in the, in the political conventional wisdom that, you would absolutely have to, like you had to have somebody on there with some credentials because the the more likely thing is that their voters just stay home. And if they stay home, that's creating a bloodbath up and down the ticket. Um, you know, you're losing the, right. the coattails of the of a presidential nominee. So that was the reason, those two reasons put together, the immediate crisis and the long-term crisis. And, you know, the funny thing is too, is I think in the back of their heads, they all, they both kind of knew that, um, that this could actually carry Trump over the line. You know, one of the things I, I read about in there and it's, and I, this was a distinction I did not see before I started reporting on it, but I like I I see it all the time now. Is this difference in the different groups of evangelicals that vote Republican? Yeah. You know, you have the televangelists who like the Paula Whites of the world and the Falwell Juniors and that kind of like that world of charismatic, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, quasi Pentecostal. The folks that believe that Trump is going to help bring uh, Jesus back, right? right. That, that yeah. one. 
Okay. Was that that core of evangelicals was already on board with Trump. They've been on, on board with Trump for a long time. Pence represented Midwestern, suburban, you know, community church evangelicals, the quieter types. They're probably like, you know, probably not so down with gay marriage, but also not, you know, like, you know, screaming about it from the pews. And Pence represented like a different group of evangelicals. And that too was really huge. So in the middle of July, Trump flies out to Indiana and he lands Tuesday, July 12th, and he's going to do a fundraiser with Mike Pence and lands in Indianapolis and the tire pops underneath the right fuselage of the Trump campaign plane. And they don't know what to do exactly. So, you know, Trump and, and Pence go off and do this fundraiser. They're trying to figure out like, you know, how, you know, are they going to be able to be mobile or not? You know, they, they figure out they're going to be stuck in Indianapolis that night. They spend the night there and Pence arranges for them to come and have breakfast at the governor's mansion for uh, Donald Trump, Eric Trump, uh, the children, Javanka mm -hmm. and uh, and Trump Jr., to meet with him and his family at the governor's mansion the next morning. And which and there's a really there's something really critical here, which I I think gets lost, and I think this kind of speaks to to me at least you know why I believe the the things that you know it's Trump world right. I mean Trump world people lie constantly like more right. than usual in politics. So like but this to me always made the most sense in this moment. You're one week before the nomination in Cleveland. At that moment, July 12th and July 13th, 2016, Mike Pence still had not met Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump mm. or Donald Trump Jr. Okay. And and I and and when you go when you when you do this, look at some of the other some of the you know some of the other reports about how Mike Pence was selected. And what you see very often is Kellyanne Conway talking about how the Trump family hit it off with the Pence family on the golf course. And that's, that's accurate. But I think, again, it's kind of like the Dan Quayle anecdote. I think people apply too much importance to these anecdotes without, without seeing the, the ones that matter. Um, you know, that was a, a, that earlier meeting in July 2016 was uh, Melania Trump and Barron Trump. And then Donald Trump and, you know, that that part of the family. Right. And Melania Trump and Barron Trump were not calling the shots inside. It was yes. the kids, as they say. Yeah. Okay. And at that point, they had not met yet. And actually, the way it was supposed to happen was Trump was supposed to fly off to California for a fundraiser with Jeff Sessions. And Pence was actually supposed to fly to New York alone without Trump for a meeting with the with the Trump children at Trump Tower. Hmm. So on enemy territory, he had to you yes. know, he had to come to Sauron's castle by himself. Yes. Yeah. Well, and to the point of him not being taken seriously yet by the family. Mm -hmm. So this actually, and you know how, and you know how much Trump thinks about theatrics and stage presence and whatnot. I mean, he's functionally a media figure, and he lives in the media world. So this is you know the stuff that resonates with him. Um, They've actually pulled Trump onto their home court. I mean, they, yeah. they have now a home court advantage. They have a, you know, they have this breakfast. Um, one of the things I reported on for the first time in the, in the book is they have a second meeting, Trump and Pence, in the basement, in the bunker of the governor's mansion. And this is kind of where Pence starts to, like, really play the game. 
Mm. You know, before now, he's kind of been playing it cool. And you're never really entirely sure with Pence, like, you know, how much how much of this, like when he says, you know, does, you know, is it what God intended or or not? You know, you're never really sure how much of that is him saying he believes it versus how much of this is him hedging, you know, waiting for the right, right window. And they kind of blur seamlessly together, right? Um, they have him in the basement and Trump gives him the brass tax talk. He says, he holds up his phone and he says, he says, look, Mike, Chris Christie's calling me right now. He's like, you want this thing? Like, I need killers. I want a killer. You want a killer? Are you going to be a killer? <laughs> and Pence looks at him and Pence is like, he's like, honestly, I don't need this. He says, I'm going to run for reelection. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm not a killer. That's not who I am. You know, if you need a killer, I will help you find a killer to make America great again. But that's not me. And Trump's like, he's like astounded. He's, you know, gobsmacked by this. And Trump's like, he's like, he's like, why are you saying like, come on, everyone else wants this. Why don't you want this? And Pence looks at Trump and like, you can almost see this, like this little Irish twinkle in his eye. Right. He says, he says, well, I don't know. You and your family are sitting here in my house on my couch. Why don't you tell me why you want me? Ha! <laughs> That's the ballsiest thing he's ever done in his life. It is. Yeah. And you know, well, second ballsiest, I suppose. Right. Yes, <laughs> man. I know. Right. When now with the, and it works. It works in that moment. So a couple hours later, 6.30 that night, Wednesday, July 13th, they get the phone call from Trump and Trump says, you know, yes, I'm picking you. They're elated. Um, they start figuring out how they're going to do the announcement in New York the next day. Now, remember too, and this is why I always talk about the dates around this too. There's a time crunch for Pence here, which is the time crunch is by Friday, July 15th, just a couple days, two days, Pence has to remove his name from the ballot for governor in Indiana in order to be able to legally run for vice president of the mm, United States. Okay. Yeah. Yes. This is, we have like a clear deadline. And again, we live on deadlines. Deadlines. Man. deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way the world works. Um, so, so Trump goes, you know, Christie calls up Trump the next day, you know, word leaks out. Trump, you know, Christie calls him up. He's like, dude, what the heck? Like, come on. I thought, I thought we were, uh, we were doing this thing. And, you know, Trump who can't, as one of one of Trump's one of Trump's guys that had been working on the uh, the 2016 uh, the the vetting process told me he was like he's like dude Trump says yes to everybody like he he just can't say no like he just doesn't know how to <laughs> so like yeah, you know the Chris last guy in the room is the guy that gets the yeah I think everybody yeah, exactly yeah. right mm -hmm. I mean impulse control or, or something right. I don't know. <laughs> bizarre um, so Christie calls him up and you know Christie's like come on dude. And Trump's like, oh, hey, man, don't worry. Nothing's final. Like, you, me, you and Mary Pat be ready. Are you guys ready? You be ready. And Christy's like, yeah, just, you know, tell it to us straight, you know, whatever. Come on, man. <laughs> like, it's, you know, the convention's next week. All right. And then Trump goes on Greta Van Susteren that night, Thursday night, and says, oh, well, I really haven't made a final decision. Marty Opst and, uh, and Nick Ayers are the chief political operatives for Mike Pence at this moment. They see this and they're like, what in the living fuck? Like, <laughs> <come on, dude. laughs> like, we literally just flew the Pence family out to New York and we need an answer by noon tomorrow. 
Like we right, need an answer right. in 18 hours because we are not, because they know how Trump works and they know that they're not going to leave, let the pence be, pences be left hanging here. So, you know, they call up Trump and Manafort, they're out in California and, um, and they're like, okay, look, you know, we just need you to announce publicly that Pence is it because we need to, you know, we got this whole thing with the filing deadline, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Look, we're going to do the announcement on Saturday. And they're like, yeah, we can't do that. The deadline is Friday at noon. And they're like, oh, yeah, come on, man. Like, you know, you're in. I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, why would you worry mm. about that? It's us. <laughs> <laughs> we would never lie to you. No. <laughs> Trump has never lied. <laughs> Yeah, no, so it's, it's all good. Friday, so the next day, Friday, July 15th, 2016, Matthew Morgan, general counsel to Mike Pence, is sitting outside the Secretary of State's office with the paperwork to remove Pence's name for the ballot and to, um, to remove his name from the ballot so they can legally run for VP on the ticket. And they have one hour to go. And they still don't have a clear answer from Trump and Manafort. And they call him up again and they said, look, if you do not say this publicly, we are pulling Mike Pence from your ticket and running him for re-election as governor. And they're like, wow, guys, well, wow, that escalated fast. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and Trump was like, he's like, well, can I just tweet it? And they're all screaming at him. They're like, yes, fucking tweet it. <laughs> <laughs> So at 11 a.m., he fucking tweeted it on July 15th, 2016. Mike Pence is my, my running mate, uh, you know, announcement to come tomorrow. Tune in, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. And it's a crazy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. It, you you yeah. said, you know, the flat tire of, of the plane, I think, you know, there, there's rumblings that Paul Manafort sort of engineered that. You, you had a good line in the book. You said, whether it was the hand of God or the hand of Paul Manafort, either way, something like that. I'm, I'm just saying it wrong, but it was a very good line. It was a very good line. Thanks, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there he was. And Manafort, again, you know, Manafort's a guy who's working with this Russian intelligence officer, but he's also a guy who in his previous life, and I think 76 during the Gerald Ford thing did broker conventions. And I think when they brought him yeah. in, that was definitely why, or at least that's what everyone thought was, was the reason. So that's a great story. So now, now we're going to, we're going to zip ahead. We're going to zip past yeah. that because I want to get to this. And uh, here's the thing I don't understand. And maybe you can help me to understand. Mm. Okay. I'm Mike Pence. Mm. I'm Mike Pence. I'm here. Oh my. Mike Pence. Okay. I've, I've been eating Trump's shit for three years, whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now it's it's 2020. It's January of 2020, right? Mm. Is that the, is that when the first impeachment was? Yeah. And, yeah, right. yeah, totally. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. And I'm Mike Pence, and I have been dealing with this fucking guy for all this time, watching him violate law after law, sitting back in the shadows, and just being, you know, basically being Trump's gimp from Pulp Fiction for this mm. entire time. And uh, now, Trump is being impeached. And I know, because I am the vice president, that he's uh, fucking guilty of all of these things that they said he does. Yes. If Mike Pence, at that moment, goes and gathers the forces, gets Mitch McConnell, gets mm. Rupert Murdoch, gets them all in a room and says, listen, guys, let's get him out of here. I'll be the president. Mm. We have a whole year. We have 11 months to, to turn the fucking ship around. Yeah. He might be president right now. Because... What happens after that is 
Mike Pence is put in charge of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, where I tweeted out, I said, I wrote on Twitter, this guy has every incentive to do this job really well. He has learned from his mistake of fucking up the HIV thing (laughs) in Indiana when he shut down the Planned Parenthoods and and there was an HIV outbreak, totally avoidable, totally his fault. Maybe he's learned from that mistake and now he can apply what he didn't do then and apply it this time. And of course, as we know, Mike Pence did fuck all and let Jared Kushner and Trump kill 900,000 Americans needlessly. So (sighs) if Mike Pence had just gathered people together at the impeachment when everyone knew, everyone knew he was guilty. I think even the Republicans knew he was guilty. They were looking for reasons to, to not do it without. Why didn't he do that? He wanted to be president. He's ambitious. Yeah. He's sat in the shadows the whole time. Why? I have my theories. What's yours? Oh, man. Yes, dude. This is very central. And this actually really, to me, helps... Is it's a great codex for understanding Pence himself. Okay, so rewind a little bit too, because there's a there's a precursor to this. You know, it's the old. Uh, I used to get this question all the time, right? It's the it's the will he push Trump off the ledge, right? Yeah. When is Mike Pence going to push Trump off the ledge? It was a big question throughout the first impeachment. Was an even bigger question after the attack, the January sixth attack. The first time this really comes up that I see this this dynamic comes up is in October 2016 during the Access Hollywood weekend, mm. when the you know the tape comes out with Trump you know talking about popping Tic Tacs and molesting women, and you know, like this is the you know this is the first time of like all right the Republican Party is worried that this might be an apocalyptic moment for them, and right. remember that and I you know I, I wrote about this a little bit in the book. I actually wrote about it more later for uh, Business Insider. Um, they had a contingency plan in place for the uh, for Trump, the the Republican Party did their RNC, and you know, they deny it, but um, but I'm I'm confident in the reporting with it, and it make to me it, it also made sense rationally. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Um, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, the contingency plan. You know, the way you always heard about it was like you know on the off chance that the Mark Burnett's, you know, tapes from uh, the, the real world or whatever, The Apprentice um, comes out and you hear him, you know, you hear Trump dropping all the N-bombs as mm-hmm. opposed to Joe, Ro- Joe Rogan dropping all the N-bombs right, uh, right, right. You know, at the same time. And so, um, so that was like the, that was the, you know, the, the you know, rip cord in case of emergency. And, um, you know, that tape comes out and it's probably, you know, about as close as you're going to get to actually getting those Mark Burnett tapes. And within two hours of this dropping on what, four o'clock on Friday, October 7th, I think. Is that right? No, is that Friday? Yeah, Friday, October 7th, 2016. Within a few hours of that dropping, the Republican Party donors are already calling up Mike Pence's top political aide, Marty Obst, and telling him that they are ready to replace Trump at the top of the ticket. They say they're speaking on behalf of Reince Priebus and that they're ready to replace Trump at the top of the ticket uh, with Pence. He doesn't even have to say anything. This will be about saving the party and he will be the nominee mm-hmm. and he'll be greatly positioned to run again in 2020. Um, you know, but we gotta, we gotta say, you know, we gotta stave off our losses now. Um, and Pence's team, Marty says, no, he says, hell no. And, you know, it's for the same reason there was also an effort to have uh, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, 
and um, and Reince Priebus signed a statement, a joint statement, saying that Trump needs to resign from the ticket. Um, Mitch McConnell uh, and his team refused to sign on to that statement. And I think you know both of these things. This gets to your question of you know why would Pence not push Trump off the ledge back then? It was because all you had to do was wait 30 days and the problem took care of itself because Trump would lose. And, you know, under right. the, the this under the all the normal laws of politics, the loser walks away. Right. They do. They do a John Kerry, you know, like that's the way things are supposed to work. Quote, unquote. Right. right. Um, so that was rational in that moment. And rationally, they were all thinking, well, well you know, they're looking forward. And, you know, Pence also knew that. If you do this, you become the traitor to the cause. Right? You yeah. become the traitor to Donald Trump's MAGA base. Um, and I don't know if they're like, you know, this is before Pizzagate and all that stuff. Although, actually, you know, fittingly enough, when was when was when was the the WikiLeaks uh, released? The same time as Access Hollywood. So it's really the same. I think Access Hollywood came out three hours after WikiLeaks. But yeah, or, or maybe it was the start- Russian. No, it was the Russia the announcement that Russia had ha- was hacking the election it was that that's what it was. It was three it's hours after that. It's it's yeah. all happening conjointly. Yeah, heads absolutely head spinning. So bring it forward. I'm sorry, a very long way of saying this because bring it forward, right? I mean, remember they're acting in in cold political calculating terms. Sure. Here, absolutely. And, and to your question of you know would Pence push do what he could to push Trump off the ledge? No. Um, And the answer was always just survival for Pence for that reason, okay, because he needs to be able to have at least some of Trump's MAGA nationalist populist base supporting him in order to run successfully himself. You know, back then they were saying, Pence's people were saying, um, you know, the best thing that can happen is Trump wins two terms and then then Pence rides the coattails as like a George H.W. Bush. And then he gets a, a term in his own right. And I think when you look at it that way, and that's certainly the way I covered, I mean, you know, I covered Pence in the Trump in the Trump administration on the campaign trail. That's kind of how I looked at him um, for the last five years up until January 6th. And on January 6th, and, you know, I don't, I, I'm not trying to apply too much, too much, you know, noblesse of liege here, but uh, I mean, he literally, he did the right thing. You know, he actually like, cause he knew politically this would probably destroy him with the base, but he did stop it. Like he yeah. did actually, like he, he did stood in the gap. And, and it's, this is the thing that's so, and thank you for that, because I think that does explain it. I think I had Amanda Carpenter on the, the uh, mm. uh, bulwark writer. She sort of said something similar, like, you know, Pence needs that. Those votes are so important and you can't win without them. And so it sort of echoes, I forget how she phrased it, but it echoes what she said, um, which is that he, he could not afford to alienate the base. Now, what happened to him, his reward for not doing the right thing during the first impeachment and not doing the right thing during the pandemic response was to have besiegers attacking the Capitol building, trying to fucking kill him and maybe also his family because he's with his wife and I think his daughter, right, that day. And uh, he is um, afraid to go into the Secret Service car um, because he doesn't trust the Secret Service. It's that level of God knows what's happening. We, We may never find out the real, you know, the real deal, but he's clearly scared and i will always think that especially in the context of the weird grassley announcement that day that grassley is the one that's going to preside over the thing i think they wanted to kill pence and pelosi that would make grassley the next in line for the presidency should trump resign 
mm. um, and get a pardon. Because I think the whole thing was about Trump. If he couldn't stay wow. in power, somebody pardoning him who would actually do it. Because Pence never gave Trump a pardon. Or no, he that that never uh, that scenario never happens for some you know, reason. You know, the thing I heard about this, that, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that there is that, and this is from I was just say that's from the the, the Democratic um, you say from the Democratic side of the world, and I, it, it makes sense to me is that Pence that they thought that if Pence got in that car, that the more the most likely thing that would happen is that they would that Trump would have directed the Secret Service to drive him to Camp David. And then have him hold up there for 14 days while they while they completed the coup, so that Pence couldn't do anything from there. Mm. Yeah, his, that makes sense for, yeah. for his own security. And then you know you say it's under the auspices of well, Antifa is coming for you, and you know Black Lives Matter is coming for you, Mike Pence. We have to keep you here um, until yeah. Chuck Grassley could do his thing. So it, it it's all and, and again the whole Secret Service bit is you know you'll, you'll recall on 9/11, George W. Bush is um, in an airplane. There's no other airplanes in the entire sky and they yeah, keep him yeah. high up off yeah. radar. Nobody knew where he was for hours and hours and hours wow. because yeah. of this attack by guys who were literally halfway around the world in a cave with no cell phone. Um, there yeah. are, there is a mob of angry people trying to kill the vice president and the secret service. Like, yeah, Trump's fine. It's good. It's all fine. <laughs> no. So that enough is tells you, you know, all you need to know. So, um, yeah. so now I guess, He's, he's been walking it back a little bit, you know, in terms of the severity. Pence, I'm talking about Pence again. Yeah. You know, in the statements he's made, is that now him trying to court the MAGA voter again and hoping <laughs> that they forget that he did this thing? I mean, I, you know what? I have a working theory. Um, and, and I think, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe this might just be whatever. Uh, I think that we're already in the post Trump universe. I, I think that sorry, I think we're already post Trump, and that doesn't mean that Trump is gone. It doesn't mean that he disappears. It doesn't even mean that he's not the nominee. But I think that we're already starting to see the like the the adaptation of Trumpism and the, the kind of the amalgamation, the sort of the synthesizing. And you have different pieces of it, right? You know, you have Ron DeSantis as like the you know the this attacker mentality. Um, you know, riding on the, you know, riding the wave of the coronavirus. Um, you've got people like, um, you know, Pence really, right? Going back and like pulling back, trying to, you know, claw back mm-hmm. um, the old movement conservatives, Tea Party conservatives, the Christian right, part, parts of the Christian right, you know, trying to pull that back. So, you know, you do see a fracturing. And I think, you know, people, have, I've been watching this for the last year, and I, I think other people noticed that, you know, Dan Balls had, at the Washington Post had a really solid column on this probably about like three or four weeks ago. Trump's numbers have been softening too. Yes, you know, it, yep. You know, so there's really like, there's there's an opening for this. So I do think that we are already in a post-Trump universe. And I think that, you know, the other key marker here as well is Glenn Youngkin, right? How did Glenn Youngkin win, right? Functionally, if we are, and, and I guess this is where my optimism comes in. Functionally, if we are in a working democratic republic, um, then what the political parties do and what the po- politicians are doing is, is, is based in winning. And the winning message is post-Trump. You know, what works for Youngkin was, um, you know, regardless of the actual policies themselves, and it seems like we're still figuring out what those policies are, mm-hmm. kind of learning that in a minute, um, but the politics of it was centrist functionally. You know, this it's you know, soccer moms with Clinton, nineteen ninety-six, right? This you is, mean centrist like who he's going after, not the message. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. Who he's okay. targeting. He's targeting yeah. your okay. voters in your suburbs, which is a good sign, frankly, right? Because that means that, you know, you're not talking about January 6th. You're not, I mean, we should be talking about January 6th because it was an attack on the country, but but you're, they don't see that as relitigating it as a successful uh, a tactic, which also means too that you're not, if, again, there's a lot of optimism baked into this, but it also means that you're not pushing around the disinformation around January 6th behind that. So, you know, theoretically. So that's what I mean by post-Trump. Um, now, if some of these, you know, the Trump-aligned secretaries of state refuse to certify elections in two years and refuse to, you know, send the, ele- the electors to Washington, the slates of the electors, you know, if they, re- if they refuse to do the normal functioning of, of this democratic republic, we're in a different world, right, in two yeah. years. We're, we're in a yeah. functionally different place. So, you know, I guess that's my big caveat here, right? My big caveat is that, like, you know, nothing is normal right now, but to the extent, you know, you can hope for something normal, it looks kind of positive, right? Like it looks like, okay, you know, we're moving past this, you know, this attempted kill. Um, I don't know. It's, I mean, <laughs> I like, I like being optimistic. We're, 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 we like to be optimistic on the show. Certainly at the, at the, as we tail towards the end of the hour, we definitely <laughs> like to close on something hopeful. So you, you did it. You, you, you landed the, unlike Rod Rosenstein, you, you landed the plane. It's good. Good job. Um, <laughs> so do you think you do you think Trump is going to be the nominee? Because Amanda, again, Amanda was like, they're not even going to have a primary. She doesn't think the RNC is even going to have a primary. I don't know, man. You know, I talked to his, you know, I talked to his people um, periodically in, about this. And I, you know, I mean, I get varying answers on it. You know, yeah, he definitely wants to know his heart's not in it. Um, I, I, I do think that, and I, I don't have any, I mean, it's, I don't have any firm reporting to back this up one way or another, but I do think that, you know, you, you could end up with the Netanyahu situation where if he is fake, facing serious legal trouble, he might decide that the only way to, to stave that off is by, you know, recreating himself as the de facto nominee. And I, I, I think that's one strategy they're watching right now, but, you know, he doesn't, he's not acting like somebody who's like, really hyped up. I mean, he, he doesn't do rallies as often as he used to, you know, since he has been deplatform, he doesn't get the attention the way they used to. Um, I've been doing a little bit of reporting around his, his media operation. Um, I think I might have something coming on that possibly. Um, we'll see. Okay. And, um, I, I, he just doesn't, f- I don't know. He doesn't feel like somebody who's locked in, but then at the same time, you know, circumstances might force him to do it. And if he did, I think, yeah, you run the risk of exactly that, of what Carpenter said. You know, I think you run the risk of, all right, you know, stealing the primaries. This whole thing that happened with the RNC, with Ronna McDaniel and David Bossie, I think you still see the, the Republican Party right now still trying to thread the needle on this. You know, so on the one hand, they say they stopped short of complete expulsion, of uh, Cheney and Kinzinger, but and they slap them with a censure. Um, but look at the mechanism they use. They used a voice vote, which actually stops all the, the 168 members from having to be on the record taking a side on this. Mm. So they're protecting their own at the same time that, it, again, it's walking the line on this. And again, that gives me a little bit of optimism that things are like borderline normal at this moment. So 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's really hard to tell. But the flip side of that, and what I see, and I, you know, I kind of talk about this. I, I'm, I've never been one who, who, who buys into the Trump is frozen the field. I don't, I don't think that's accurate because the field's running. The, yeah. the field's out there doing confabs. Carl Rove, who was a Donald Trump advisor in 2020, is now holding, um, you know, donor soirees for everyone not named Donald Trump. You okay. know, so it's like they did that down in Texas. Um, CPAC is now CPACs. You know, there's like five CPACs a year all over the globe. That's a pro-Trump operation. Pence is out there doing family council things. Mike Pompeo lost 50 pounds. Um, remarkable. Good for him. I, I, I'm he, going to. I, he had a glow up. It's a late glow up. He's in a late glow up. <laughs> oh my God. I need, where, where's my late glow up? I want a late glow up. <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I think he looked better with the weight, to be honest, but you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah, whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's not frozen, right? Like, you know, it's very, like it's active right now. And I think all those things, again, you know, in politics, right? Watch the actions, right? That's what, you know, that's what tells us more than the words and yeah, people yeah. are running, you know, yeah. they're out there. Yeah. I'm rooting, I'm rooting for Liz Cheney. I want, I want, I want a functional sane Republican party and I want her to, to bring it. And, and, um, and the fact that I'm rooting hard for for Dick Cheney's ah. kid is it tells you all you know about this topsy turvy world. But I really do. I feel nothing but admiration for her and, and what she's done. So, you know. But I think for this cycle, I don't think maybe not yet. I, I don't know. A lot can happen between now and 2024. Certainly, as as we've seen, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when stuff I'm ramps waiting, up. I'm waiting for the the con the Kanye Andrew Yang Mark Cuban Independent Party threesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> my son loves Kanye and I'm like, dude, I think Kanye is, is not doing good things. It's between the Putin stuff and the, and the financial and, you know, the, the thing in Georgia where his PR got person was like trying to intimidate them. Yes. Like I, uh, maybe Ye needs to step away from the politics for a little while if he's allowed to, um, you know, maybe not, not a great idea. So uh, the fact of being famous does not make you great at everything, you it's, know? It's, <laughs> Dude, remember when there was the video of him in the Oval Office and they showed him unlocking his iPhone and it was just all zeros? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. You can't but that's part of his charm. My son is endlessly amused by Kanye. He's like, oh, this is how Kanye is. That's just what he's like, you know. It's just the uh, easy, man. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Tom LoBianco, your book is Pied in Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Is it in paperback yet? Yeah, it's in it's it's a paperback. Yeah, I have a I have a nice hard hardcover copy here, but this is a wonderful, uh, wonderfully written book. Um, if you're interested in Mike Pence, you're on Twitter at what? It's just Tom Lobianco, right? Yeah, just Tom Lobianco. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, and you're writing now for business in, uh, what is it? it's Business Insider. Well, so I, I left Business Insider back in August, and um, and I've been uh, f uh, freelancing for Yahoo News and Vanity Fair. Oh, okay. I, I I thought. See, I'm I'm behind the times. I'm behind the times. Yeah, so, okay. So your stuff is now Yahoo News and Vanity Fair, and wherever right. we see it, um, you're doing great work. And like I said at the top, man, whatever they're paying you, it's oh. it's too little to cover these guys. So I, I I'm glad it's not me. I <laughs> and uh, you know, th thank you for for uh, for doing the good work with this stuff, and and thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much, man. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs. 
Signadella, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.